we are making a return to our series that I have entitled Foundations. It is a study of what we believe, and of course I've been telling you I'm going to follow this up after we uh, talk about what we believe, follow that up with uh, how we interpret that. We have a, a, a document here that if you're a member of the church here, you are familiar with this document, although I am not so naive to believe that you have our, uh, you know, know it so well that you could tell me what it says in it all the time. But uh, we're going to take that, and that's our statement of faith and practice, and we're going to take that. Once I'm done with this first part, which we're just getting started here, uh, should be another uh, month and a half or around the new year or so, we'll probably be finishing up this first part of it. And then I'm going to focus on uh, teaching through uh, that, the second statement of practice that we have. So we're just beginning here, kind of getting our, our feet grounded, laying the foundation of what we believe. And I'll say this, I've said it before, and I'll say this again. Uh, this is one of those things that is so easy for us to, uh, to only deal with up here in our heads, right? So to, to like, yeah, I know what the Bible says about this and this and this, and, and that's what I agree with up here. And I, by the way, I'm not against that. The Bible is very clear. Much of the transforming work that the Holy Spirit does is by renewing our minds. When we sin, it's because we're thinking incorrectly about who God is, about who we are, about what we get or what we deserve or what we can do. Those, so it's, it's a matter up here. But it also has to move beyond here. It can't just be up here. We can't just have a theological discussion about who God is and who we are and, and have it be stuck up here and not travel down in here anywhere. That's why I have tried to continually say, here's, I'm telling you, and I hope you agree with me, that here's the things we believe about God. Here's the things we believe about Jesus. Here's the things we believe about the Holy Spirit. But it's got to be more than just, like, I, I believe that up here. Do we actually believe it? Do we believe it so much that it affects what we do with our lives? Now, this, I said before, again, I think, uh, this will become much more clear when we talk about the statement of faith and practice. Because that's where we're going to say, if this is what I believe, does it come out in what I do, how I live, what I do with my life? Or is it only what I believe up here? So we've laid the foundation. We've said this is who God is. This is who Jesus, his son is. This is who the Holy Spirit is. And today our focus is on the Bible, the word of God. And I'm just going to begin there because the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the written word of God. That is a beginning sort of summary kind of statement of what we believe uh, about the Bible. Now I'm going to begin like I always do. I hope you've still got this copy. I hope you still refer to it as we go through this message. Again, there's more back there in that little uh, literature rack there. I'm going to read just what it says out of here. This is the statement of theology I'm referring to. This is filled with all kinds of theological language. The scriptures, it says, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, will sound very much like what I just have up here. The scriptures, both the Old Testament and New Testament, are the word of God, a supernatural revelation from God to mankind verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit through human instrumentality, meaning it comes from the Holy Spirit, but men actually wrote it down, without error in the original writings in all that they affirm. They are a God-given record of the incarnational revelation of God in Christ, in other words, that God came down and became man, and a written disclosure of God's will and plan for mankind. The scriptures are the final authority for faith and practice with the entire New Testament being the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the perfected rule for the Christian church. Now, that's quite a bit of a mouthful. That's quite a lot of language. I'm, I don't know if you noticed this or not. If you have one of these, there are a lot of footnotes, meaning when they make a statement, they clarify it down here. 
of this, with this one in particular, if you can, I don't know if you can see how well your eyesight is or if you have one in front of you. With this one in particular, I have this much of the statement of theology. I have this many footnotes. So you should pay attention to what it says there. It helps clarify what it means by these words that we're saying. That's also what we're doing in our messages is saying, uh, that kind of trying to clarify what we mean when we say this is what the Bible is. Okay, so we're going to jump in because we're going to talk about what the Bible is, first of all, sort of in a broad sense. We're going to get to some functions of the word coming down the road here uh, in the second part of the message. But we've got we to start by just sort of a broad overview of what is the Bible. When we talk about the Bible, what do we mean by that? And this is very important, by the way, because it's important if we're going to say that we are biblical Christians or that we have a biblical worldview, we have to sort of wrapped in that, no, what do we mean when we say the Bible? What, what do we understand the Bible to be? Now, I'm going to go back, reach back a little bit to sort of build my case, and it's going to work a little bit as a, as a summary as well. We, these first couple verses, we've already referred to them in prior messages because they were dealing with something else. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And it goes on to say that Jesus is the exact representation of God. I put the verse up here because I want us to see some things. Long ago, before Jesus, God spoke primarily to his people through prophets. We see that in the Old Testament over and over and over again. He spoke through his prophets. And the writer of Hebrews makes that point very clear, right? I mean, it just says it right there. Long ago, many times, many ways, through lots of things, God spoke by his prophets. Then he says... When Jesus came, then God began to reveal himself or to speak through Jesus, through the Son. So we see God speaking. Now pay attention to the words that are being used here over and over again. God speaking, and we see that he gave those words through the prophets, and then we see Jesus coming, and we see that he now spoke through Jesus. And then we come to these very familiar verses, which I'm not sure why. I lost connection to Let me see if I can reconnect here real quickly before I, uh, so I can control it up here. I'm not sure what's going on. Oh, there it is. All right. John chapter 1. We know these verses. In fact, many of you hopefully can quote these verses. In the beginning was the Word. Again, pay attention to the words being used. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, I read all of those. The first verse is really the key part, because it's reinforcing what the writer of Hebrews has said, that God then began to speak through Jesus. The Word, he calls him that on purpose. The Word, the things that God spoke, were in Jesus, and the Word was God. And I want to just tie together that all things were made through him, that there was nothing made without, that to, to reference what we're, going to, what we're going to encapsulate by the time we get to this. Because in verse 14 of John, we read these words. Anybody know what verse 14 says in John chapter 1? Without cheating? Let me know what it says. And the Word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He made his living among us. This is very powerful. Think about this. Think of what God did through his spoken word. Just name a few things. Let's make sure you're tracking with me this morning. Just name a few things that God did through by speaking. What did God do by speaking? He made light. What? What? Creation. He created everything. Everything you see, by the way. I mean, just take a look around. Everything. Now, you could say, well, we built these buildings with our hands, right? But the materials, everything you see on, in creation, God made by speaking. 
He spoke those things and they appeared. We talked about all that. I don't want to cut, preach that message again. Actually, we're talking about creation next week again. But then it says that the word, all the power and all everything you think of in God speaking, it became flesh and it dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There's a lot of things we could talk about there, but I have to leave it with that. So the word became flesh, and we saw God. That's what we refer, refer to when we say incarnate, God incarnate, God in, in carnality, God in a body is what that means. That's what that word means. So we had God speaking through the prophets, and then God began to speak through his son. And then we get to these verses. If you've opened your Bibles, I don't know if you've been tracking along, but if you open your Bibles, I do want you to see these. This is from 2 Peter. Flip to 2 Peter. We do a lot of Bible flipping in these, these messages because I'm not teaching through a text. I'm teaching uh, through some subjects. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is referring back to seeing Jesus, seeing the Word becoming flesh, God's Word becoming flesh, and living among us. And he says this in verse 16 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make this stuff up, he says. He says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, and here's what the voice said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, we know, of course, what he's referring to here, right? When he says we were with him on the holy mountain, what's he referring to? I'm going to make sure that you're participating in, in the sermon today. The Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go with him, and... Uh, and they see Jesus transfigured on top of the mountain, and they see and they hear God's voice saying, this is my son. That's not the only time God said that, but he said, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. And Peter says, listen, when we came to you and told you about Jesus and how incredible Jesus is and how he's the answer to every need you have, we're not just making stuff up here. We were there. We saw him. We recognized. We can, we can tell you we saw him in flesh and blood. Look at what he says in the very next verse. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now let's chunk that apart, because I believe, this is what I'm going to tell you this morning, this is what I think you believe too, I hope you believe, I believe that what he's referring to when he says this in verse 19 we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. He's saying all of this Old Testament scriptural writings of prophecy and all of the gospels which have by now been written when Peter writes this and even some of the other letters because he refers to Paul's other letters so he already knows them. Even Paul's other letters that are written about the life of Jesus and how to fulfill them. He's saying you now have Everything that God spoke to the prophets and everything that we saw with our eyes in the incarnated Jesus, you now have more fully confirmed than anybody has ever had in the history of mankind. What's he referring to? He's referring to this. He's referring to the Bible. He's referring to everything that you have heard God say through the prophets, everything that we saw come true in Jesus. It's been recorded, and you have it more fully confirmed, more than just the prophets saying things, more than just seeing Jesus. 
Pay attention to that. More than just seeing Jesus, you now have it fully confirmed. It's recorded for all time here. And then, of course, he follows it up by saying what? You should pay attention to that. You should pay attention to it until something happens. And this goes back to what Autumn said. Until something happens. Until the light begins to dawn. It's a very clear reference to Jesus. Until the morning star, that's Jesus, until the morning star rises in your hearts. And he goes on, confirms what he's saying. He says, I'll tell you why I'm saying that. Because no prophecy of what? No prophecy of scripture has ever been made just because a guy wants to write it down. But the prophet speaks when he is inspired or when he's led by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. That's why we read what we read in here, that we believe it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through men, but the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They spoke and they wrote down, inspired by God, and that's what you have today that's more fully confirmed, more, more, more stable than anything else you could have. That is the Bible. Let me put it this way in summary for you this morning. I'm going to have you participate here with me a little bit. We have the spoken word, which I mean, when I mean that, I mean what God said through the prophets. Someone look up Psalm 119. Psalm 119, by the way, is a long psalm, and it's chock full of as many different kinds of words you can think of for the word of God, for the, for the laws of God, for the rules of God, for the testimony of God, for what God has said. God has spoken. God has said. Someone look up Psalm 119, 160. Verse 160, I had to pick one verse. There's lots of verses I could have picked. I picked one verse out of there to kind of summarize what I mean by this. When you find it, if you would just, we've done this before, if you would find Psalm 119, 160 and just read it out in a nice, loud, clear voice for us this morning. The entirety of your word is truth. Every bit of it, it's truth. And all of your righteous judgments will endure forever. That is the pow- that's the power of the spoken word. It's like this. If God said it, what does that mean? It's true. It's done. God said it. Think about it. Everything he said, right? Done. That's, by the way, why Paul can say that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Because when God says it, it's the same as done. doesn't matter whether we've seen it yet inside of time. It is done. It's, it's, it's like it's, it's fixed. You can't change that because God doesn't change. There's no shadow of changing in him. He said it. All of the spoken word, if you add to the spoken word the incarnate word, that's Jesus. So someone look up uh, for us. Uh, this is a bit of a, uh, maybe a veiled reference here, but, or at least it's kind of what I'll tell you why, why I picked it. Someone look up Luke 24, verse 27, which, by the way, if you're left in the dark, we have a handout in the backside of your bulletin. The verse is referenced right there so you can see where I'm going to head. Luke 24, verse 27. Now, this is Jesus after he's resurrected, and he's uh, meeting these two guys who are on their way to Emmaus, and he's talking with them. So someone read verse 27 of Luke 24. All right, so as, as they were wondering, are you the only one who doesn't know about this guy that was killed? In the, I mean, like, what, what's going on? You don't know what's going on? And, and Jesus begins, as he sits down, he begins to say, hey, listen, this is how it should be. And he begins with Moses and the prophets. Again, this is a reference back to the spoken word. Moses and the prophets. Now, they did write it down eventually, but it primarily came through the spoken word. And, and, and he began to refer to all of them and say, this is, must be fulfilled in the Messiah. Now, the irony, of course, uh, they didn't realize right at that point is, who is sitting right in their presence? Who is the one that's the fulfillment of all that? Him. He's right there, right? Jesus is right there. After he left, they said, were not our hearts burning within us 
as he explained scripture to us. The reason that's true is because he was telling them about what the word said about him. He was the fulfillment. He was the incarnation. He was the, the in flesh visible thing of all the things that God had spoken about. So you have the spoken word of God and you have the incarnate word of God. That's Jesus coming in flesh. When you put them together, that's what we see here in our Bibles today. Let, let me just say that to you. That's the premise I'm making. What this contains is the spoken word of God and the incarnate word of God, Jesus, the flesh. That's why we have the four gospels, the four witnesses to who Jesus was. That is what we see in the written word. That is why we get verses like this that refers to the word. And this should be very well known. I'm guessing every one of you knew I was going to share this verse at some point in the message today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Someone read them. Anybody know them by heart? Anybody know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 by heart? All scripture is given by inspiration. Anybody know how that goes? Yes, the next verse says, so that why? So the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'll put the verse, I'll just put it up here for us. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is inspired of the Holy Spirit. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That, I'm just telling you, this is why Scripture can say this about itself. Because it contains, it points to, it reveals to us, it is more fully confirmed the recording of God's spoken word through the prophets and God's incarnate word through Jesus is what we have contained. That's why it's so powerful. That's why it's living and active. It is ready, made for us. It's profitable for us. It is for your good. It is for your good. Can I say that again? This is for your good. We may not like to be corrected. Can I say this to you too? We may not like to be corrected. How many of you like to be told you're wrong? I don't. I shouldn't be raising my hand. Let me ask you this though. Would you rather know now that you were wrong or would you rather know on the day of judgment that you were wrong? If you will be honest with yourself, there's not a single one of us sitting here this morning that does not prefer to know now as opposed to the day you're standing before the throne. That's why the word is good for us. It is profitable for teaching us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. Caleb, I'm having real issues here this morning. I'm not sure what's going on. I may just rely on you so I can forget about what, what's happening up here. Is that okay? All right. You can try to know where I'm going. You usually do a pretty good job. Now I'm not there with those verses. I got to read it back there. It's profitable for us. So, can you go back one slide? Thank you. It's profitable for us for te teaching us, reproving us, for correcting us, and for training us in righteousness. Now, before we get to that slide that was just up there, let me say this because I, I want to. Maybe some of you know this stuff already. Maybe some of you are well acquainted. But for some of us that may not be so sure, and you may be saying, "Hold on, you're giving me what the Bible says about itself." How can you do that? Because if the Bible isn't true, then you've just lost the whole power of what you're standing on. Like I'm building a case for the Word of God based on the Word of God, which if you recognize, if you're into logical kind of fallacy kind of stuff, you say, wait a minute, if it's not true, then the whole thing is cut down at its legs and nothing stands. So I could tell you about the fact that the Bible is proven to be true by the countless lives throughout the centuries it has changed and transformed. You can find, if you will take time to do so, you can find, and I actually would encourage you to do this, you can find stories upon stories upon stories upon stories of people's lives completely 180, dramatically changed based on the Word of God, based on the power of Scripture. 
You can find stories of people who are imprisoned for their faith, who are given latrine duty. Do you know what latrine duty is? That's called cleaning up after other people's human waste. And did so gladly because the guards used pages from Scripture to wipe. And that was the only access to the word they had. You can find stories where people say, I gladly volunteered to do that job. Because it, I knew it meant I could get a page of Scripture to hang on to. I could convince you of Scripture's truth through that. I could also convince you of Scripture's truth by telling you the Bible, the 66 books in the Bible were written by over 40 different authors over a span of probably 1,000, maybe even 1,500 years, and they came from all walks of life. They were completely on different ends of the spectrum in terms of where they were, who they were, how they lived, how they knew each other. Most of them didn't even know each other, and yet you have one cohesive story written from start to finish. How does that happen? It doesn't happen by men, I can tell you that. You and I, today, we could sit down and each of us write stories and we would be miles apart in what we say, most likely. And we live at the same time in mostly the same strata of life from mostly the same cultural background. How do kings and tax collectors write the same things? How do shepherds and prophets write the same things? But mostly I could convince you about the authenticity and truth of Scripture based on using a little bit of mathematics. Now, this guy is way smarter than I ever will be, but he said, I want to put some mathematical proof to this thing called prophecy in Scripture. We've been dealing with prophecy. It's the Word of God, and we see it come true. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, about the coming of the Messiah. I should say it that way. There are over 300 references written by lots of different people at different times and different stages of life made about this guy coming who was called the Messiah. Just little snippets, just little things, like he'll be born in Bethlehem, like he'll come riding in on a donkey, like he'll be betrayed, and it'll be for 30 pieces of silver. By the way, two different guys that said that. All kinds of stuff. Over 300 of them. This guy named Peter Stoner. Some of you may be familiar with this already. This guy named Peter Stoner said, he was a mathematician. He said, I want to put some numbers to this kind of stuff because for me, I like to think concretely. And he said, if I pick eight of those prophecies, eight, I was doing this, so that's not right. Eight of those prophecies, you see, he's smarter than I am. You, you get this, right? If I pick eight of those prophecies and I say the chances of those made by different people, the chances of those, just eight of those prophecies fulfilled in one man in his lifetime, the chance of that is one chance in 10 to the 17th power, number of things. Now, if you don't know what that number is, that number is 100 quadrillion. That's a really big number, right? 100 quadrillion. If you're into mathematics, you need to understand 1 times 10 to the 17th power. But I can tell you this. 100 quadrillion is a very big number. How many of you can approximate the size of a silver dollar with your fingers? Can you, can you show me about how big a silver dollar is? I don't know how big it is. They're about like this, right? Peter Stoner said, if you would have 100 quadrillion silver dollars, you could cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. You understand 100 quadrillion is a big number. Two feet deep of silver dollars throughout the entire state of Texas. So if I were to take one silver dollar and mark an X on it, and I would somehow by some mechanism manage to drop this in the middle of the state of Texas somewhere and stir the whole big pot up, and I would send you blindfolded into Texas and say, you walk around as long as you want to, and you reach down and you pull out the one that I marked with an X. How likely is that? Well, I can tell you it's one in 100 quadrillion. That's the chance. That is how likely one man will satisfy eight of those prophecies in his lifetime. There are over 300 of them that Jesus made come true. 
Do you believe the Bible is true? Do you believe that when God says it, it's going to be like that? Do you know it down to the core of your being? What we have contained here is the spoken word of God and the incarnate word of God, and it is more fully confirmed for us to which we should do well to pay attention to until we know that there is a light burning inside of us that will not be extinguished again. Let me tell you, this is where I was at. One, one story, one caveat. If you turn to, not, it's not a caveat. One, one clarification. Turn to the Gospel of John. Jesus said these words when he was alive. He looked around at people. He was actually looking at religious people, in fact, when he said this. John chapter 5, verse 37. That's where I want to start reading a section of verses. He says, I'm going to kind of jump in the middle. I hope you'll excuse me for jumping in the middle of this text here. He's in the middle of, of a discussion. And he says, and the Father sent me, Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. We read about that in Peter. Has borne witness about me. That the Father, sorry. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. This, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come from in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Listen to this carefully. Do not think that Jesus will be the one accusing you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Listen, I put the verse up there that I think is the critical one I want to point to. He looks at them and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But they talk about me. They bear witness to me, and yet you refuse to come to me. Now listen, what I'm saying here, I am not devaluing scripture. I'm not, I'm not lowering scripture. I'm not saying it's not as important. What I'm doing is I'm elevating Jesus. I'm pushing him higher. This is the word of God, and you should treat it with the utmost respect, and you should give time and attention to it and know what it says. What I'm telling you, however, is that it only has the value it has because it contains the truth about the incarnate word of God, about Jesus. It is always front to finish pointing to who Jesus is. It has power in life because it points to the one who gives power in life. This, again, is a reflection on let us not just know the Bible academically. Let us not, the other way I could say this is, let us not know about God. Let us know God because we read his word. Again, please, I am not devaluing scripture. I'm not, say, I'm not telling you Jesus is saying throughout the scriptures, throughout what Moses wrote. He's saying, no, 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 believe what it says. Come to know me, the one who really gives life. Well, let's move on. Let's look at the function of the Bible there's a couple of verses here we're going to go through. I'm just going to read through them. He, I see Caleb already jumped ahead. I was looking for him to move, and I should have been reading. Many of you know these verses. Just a couple of things about it. Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah spoke this. He says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return uh, there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout 
giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. He's giving a reference there, an agriculture reference. Most of us would understand that. Rain comes, snow comes, and it doesn't just go back, but it, it does some good. It waters things. It brings forth seed. It makes so that we can eat. It makes so, so that we have a nourishment. He does all that. He says, and that's a picture I want to show you. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. The very thing. I'm sorry. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God will accomplish. Now, again, these, all these references, we're talking about this because it contains not just these words, but it really reflects the spoken word of God and the incarnate word of God. It reflects who Jesus is. That's why it has this, this power. This word will not return void. Can I tell you? That's, that, that's, that's, a, that's a promise God makes. If you, will, if you will read and give yourself to being changed by this word, if you will align your life by this word. Again, read Psalm 119. It's chock full. We're going to actually read a little bit of it here in a little bit. It's chock full of references to following God's law. If you will do that, you will see that it will not, it's not sent in vain. It's not sent and doesn't accomplish anything. It will take a hold of your life and change it. The problem is many of us don't really allow it to. And you may say, but I don't get anything out of it. I want to be careful and not be too painting with a broad brush or too harsh with you. I have found, I'll just say it this way personally, I have found most often in my life when the word of God does not seem alive or does not seem to have much power or impact, it is because I have already had a moment where I have said no to God about something he's convicted me on. And when I begin to tell God no and I don't want to obey something in my life, then it makes a lot of the rest of things lose their color and their value and their power. Again, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but I have found that to be true in my life. When it seems dead to me, it is because I have separated myself from him. I referred to Psalm 119. Let's read some verses out of Psalm 119. Again, I could read a lot of this, but I just want to read a couple of things here. Psalm 119, I'm going to read starting verse 105. Very familiar verse for us. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. By the way, just keep mental track here. How many of these verses refer to God and his word or his rules or his statutes or something? Just about every verse is going to. Verse 108. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I think actually every single verse I read talked in some form or fashion about God's word, about his law, about his rules, his statutes. I particularly like the last one because it says in here, in my heart, I have, I have said I'm going to obey them. By the way, real quickly, I could preach all, I actually did preach all message on those exact set of verses one time, a long time ago. But just real quickly, just from those verses, we see that God's word directs us. It's a, it's a lamp, right? It's a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. God's word directs us. It shows us the way to go. God's word defends us. Look, it says in verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but what protects me from that? It's when I do not stray from your precepts, when I walk according to your word. It defends us. It also, we see it delights us, right? He says, it's in my heart. I incline my heart. I want, they're the joy of my heart. I incline them. I want to I follow them forever and ever. I mean, that's just in a couple of verses. Real quickly, we can see how God's work Word is effective in our life. There's more. Let's continue some other things. 
because we see a great function of God's word. And pay attention to the words that are going to be said in this next, uh, next uh, passage here. Very familiar. Romans chapter 10. Open your Bibles there because I want you to see these words. If you're not, if you're not following along with everything, at least come to here. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8. By the way, of, of any message, I should say this. I should say, I should say it this morning. While you're flipping there, let me just say this. Sometimes I say things like, like, I'm sorry if I'm reading a lot of scripture. If I'm, and I don't really mean that as an apology. Like, as a, like I'm not gonna, I'm gonna stop doing it. I just mean, I hope that's not boring to you. There are people sometimes when we look at pastors and preachers and say, you know, I really love listening to him because, you know, he tells great stories like Dale Keffer does. Or, you know, he's a pretty funny guy or he, you know, all those things. And, and I'm not saying those people aren't great preachers. In fact, I just told someone this morning, I think Dale is probably my f- favorite preacher to listen to. Because I love hearing stories. But one thing I've found for me that the Lord has asked of me many, many times is that the power of my preaching is not in the words I say or the stories I tell or the examples I give or the way I can make you laugh or whatever I can do. But it's to tell you what the word of God says. So I won't apologize, and of any message, this one makes the most sense to read a lot of scripture. I just hope it's not boring to you. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? Now, he just has a discussion about how we become righteous and how do we get to Jesus. Do we have to go up to where he is, or do we have to go down to where he's been, or how, how do we get to Jesus? And he says this, but what does it say? Again, the focus on the word. What does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So here's what we proclaim. This is what it says. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, and he says again, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to notice, maybe you don't find great irony these kind of things. Maybe they're not these little special things that show you how perfect God is and how much he just, just has done wondrous things in working together his word. But I want you to, I want, for, for, you get a glimpse in my head. To me, it's so beautiful. This entire thing, this entire message stressed upon the word of God, the spoken word of God, the incarnate word of God being given to us in the written word of God. And all these are words. And what do we do with words? We speak them or we write them down or we, we, we preserve them or we do something. And it tells me even as our very act of being saved, what do we do? Yes, we believe. But what else do we do? We say it. Isn't that interesting? The power of God's spoken word is reflected in his creation, in his most precious creation that is filled with his very image that also, the greatest power you can have is to say it. That's why it's so vital. It's why it's so vital for you to say those words. I confess Christ. I trust Jesus. I have no hope other than Jesus. Everyone who what on the Lord? Who calls on the Lord will be saved. Isn't that interesting? It is, there's probably a, fancy word for what this is, and I don't know what it is. I'm not that smart. But it, it, it is, is a reflection of, of the power of God that works in us when we do that very same thing. When we call on him, when we cry out to him, we will be saved. Now, 
listen to this because then he listen to what he's going to present. This is the argument he's making. I didn't finish reading here yet. Listen to this. How then will you call on him if you haven't believed? How are you going to know that you have to call on him if you haven't believed? If you haven't worked it in here, how's it going to come out of here? And then he follows that line of thought. That was verse 14. Let's read verse 15 or the rest of that. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they, shall, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, the, you see the logical progression he just made? He said, you can't make that confession if you don't believe. And you can't believe if you don't know. And you can't know if no one ever tells you. And you can, no one ever tells you unless they're sent to go tell you. You see why it's important that those who already know the gospel go tell other people about it. And then he continues to play off on these things about hearing and obeying. He says, therefore, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And I would tell you that means the spoken the written word. Again, I could, actually, I would just, I could tell you this morning, it, only, it means the written word because the written word contains what? The spoken word of God and the incarnate word of God. James agrees, by the way. He says in verse 21 of chapter 1 that you should humbly receive the word that's implanted in you, which will save your souls. If you want a visual, by the way, this morning, if you want a visual of what you should do with this, he just gave it to you. If you're agricultural anyway, if you love gardening, if you at all in any way know anything about that, he said it should be implanted in you. What do you do if you want to plant something, right? You got to prepare the ground. You got to make a nice, you give you a little trowel. You got to make a nice little hole. I'm not a gardener, by the way, so this is probably not totally accurate. But, and then you got to plant something in there, and then you got to cover it back up, and you got to water it, and you got to take care of it. You got to get rid of the weeds. You got to do all those things. That's what you and I should be doing with the word of God. Preparing the soil, making a little hole here, getting rid of the other stuff, planting it in here, covering it up nicely, allowing God to wash it and pulling those weeds out when he tells us to get rid of them. That's why he said we should meekly or humbly accept the implanted word, which will save our souls. All right, let me come to this verse yet because we have to, we have to read these words because, again, you probably expected all of you expected at least to come out somewhere. There's these great verses in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is a reflection of the word we have written, recorded for us. That is the representation of the spoken word and the incarnate word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now you know why I will not apologize for reading God's word to you. It has the ability to do that which I can never do. Reach down inside of you. And pick apart the things that are so wound together and so deeply hidden and so far away from the light that nobody ever has access to them. But the word of God can do it. Can reach there. It's a sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It can get down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Can I tell you one more thing about this morning? One more. I, I want to just again reinforce to you that this word that I'm referring to, it points to Jesus. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a representation of God's spoken word and the incarnate word all together. That's why it's so powerful. That's why it's living and active and breathing. Let me take you to the, to the revelation that John saw. If you flip over real quickly to Revelation chapter 1. When John sees Jesus, 
There's some other verses that describe what Jesus, what Jesus looked like in John chapter 1, verses 12, 13, 14. But I want to look especially at verse 16. It says in verse 16 of Revelation chapter 1, it says, He saw Jesus, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Now, two things I want to point out about that. First of all, notice the clear imagery. What did we just read in Hebrews? The word of God is what? It's living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Isn't it amazing that a totally different writer of Scripture, once again, I can tell you this is why the Bible's true, a totally different writer of Scripture had a revelation where he saw Jesus, and what did he see Jesus pictured as? How did he see Jesus? A two-edged sword coming from where? What do you do with your mouth? You speak, right? It's where words come from. A two-edged sword protruding. And then what did, the second point I want to make is, what did Jesus tell him to do? These things I'm going to show you and tell you, what should you do with them? Write them down. Spoken and incarnate word of God is what you hold and what you allow to gather to way too much dust in your house. It should not be so. Also, just to show you how this fleshes out, when Jesus begins to give the message to the churches, we're not going to read all of them, we're going to read just a couple of verses, to the church in Thyatira, this is from chapter 2 now, I'm going to jump over to verse 19, to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says these words, John wrote them down, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, sounds good so far, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Now, all that stuff is not stuff I'm really, I mean, there's a message there, but they're not for this morning. But what I really want to get to is the last part here. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Remember again. What do we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides, it cuts down, dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and it pierces even, even knowing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And the next verse says what? For there's nothing hidden from God. Nothing. We're all laid bare before him to whom we must give account. Isn't it interesting? When John saw Jesus, he saw him as a man with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he said, write these things down. And in one of his messages, he says, here's the point I'm trying to make with this, is that everyone, all the churches will know that I am the one who searches and knows hearts and will judge those and give account, that you're going to have to give account of what you've done. Do you see how the written word represents Jesus incarnate, who Jesus is? That's why it's powerful and living. That's why it contains the power that it has for us. I want to close with just a summary. There are far, there are so many verses. I mean, I had, I had to throw so many out that I could not share this morning. There are so many verses in the Bible itself that refer to the power of the Bible, the power of the word, and the, and the good it does in our lives. I try to hit the, the, the highlights in the notes, but I want to summarize for you this morning, just in general, the things that we the way that what we believe about the Bible, what the purpose of the Bible is or the function of the Bible or what it reveals to us. Caleb, go ahead and just go through those. The Bible reveals to us who God is, 
The Bible reveals to us who we are. The Bible reveals what God has done for us. And the Bible reveals what he wants from us. If you can approach your Bible reading from this perspective, I think you'll go very far in helping to understand and helping to live right with him. First of all, it tells us who God is. It reveals who God is. Much of the Bible is for that purpose. Who is this God that we serve? And secondly, it tells us who we are. How do we fit in? And if you know anything about it so far, if you read almost all the Old Testament, and a lot of the New Testament actually points to the same thing, if you read a lot of this, you recognize that in this whole picture of who God is, and he turns out to be pretty amazing, right? And who we are, we turn to be out to be not quite so amazing, right? A little less than amazing. Actually, a lot less than amazing. Actually, pretty rotten. You know, quite evil, actually. When we understand, when we read Scripture, who God is and who we are, we immediately know we are in deep, deep trouble. Which is why the Word of God also contains for us what God has done for us. How He has rescued us from this deep, deep trouble. And then furthermore, it tells us, and here's what I want from you. When you come to realize and understand who I am and who you are and what I've done for you, here's what I want you to do. If I can give you just a slight challenge, in all of your Bible reading, seek to see how the specific passage that you were reading at that point answers those questions. What does it tell you about who God is, about who you are, about what God has done for us, and or about what he wants from us? Many passages will answer multiple of those. Some of those will only be one of them. I challenge you, some of them are a little more difficult than you might expect. But I have found when I sincerely undertake it, I can find the answer to those questions in just about every single verse I read out of God's word. Or at least out of every text I read. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say individual verses, but out of every text. That's how the Bible should be read anyway. Don't just read one verse. It wasn't written that way, you shouldn't read it that way. All right. We have come to the end, for which you might be very thankful. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Again, I feel like I just have not been able to do justice, and I feel like I, I can't strongly enough say things. I feel like I, I can't fully enough explain or detail things or convince or whatever it might be. But again, I rest in your sovereignty. I rest in your Holy Spirit's power. I rest in the power of the Word itself. I rest in the fact that there's a body of believers here who wants to know and believe and understand these things, and in many ways already does, for which I'm grateful. Lord, we want to again, again this morning, just be awakened again to the incredible, incredible gift you've given to us in your word, your written word. How it represents all the words that you've spoken that you need us to know. How it represents who Jesus was, what the incarnate was like when he came. And all those things you preserved for us. It shows us it shows us how desperately we need you. I, I suspect, Jesus, you could say the same thing about us. We're never to come to that someday. You don't have to accuse us. The Bible we hold in our hands, the words that we said we believe, and yet if we refuse to come to you, those very words accuse us. Those very words will be the ones that, uh, help, uh, that stand in judgment of us. 
for we knew what your word said. I'm reminded of the man who wanted Lazarus to go back and warn his brothers. And God, you said, if they don't believe what's written, why would they believe when Lazarus comes back from the dead? Of course, ultimately pointing to us. If we don't believe what's written, why would we believe in Jesus who's risen from the dead? God, you're the one who has to work in us, and I'm so grateful that you do. Help us. We just want to ask. Give us a fresh, renewed desire and hunger for your word. To take it in, to implant it in us. To live by it. To say it's our delight. It's our delight to live according to your rules, for that's the best place we could be. More than anything, we want Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to be found in him. Thank you for your strong, rich language and words that you have in the Bible for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.